This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Language, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Malcolm Keating. Today, we'll be talking to Nirmalangshu Mukherjee, author of The Human Mind Through the Lens of Language, Generative Explorations, published in 2022 by Bloomsbury Academic Press. Welcome to New Books and Language, Nirmal. Welcome. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us today. So let's let's dive right in. As I understand it, your book argues for what you call Principle G. Um, G for generative, and you think this principle governs a range of things which are unique to human beings. Um, before we dive into all the details, which we'll get into, can you explain why you think this is an important thesis and why you wanted to write this book? Um, there are several ways of approaching the topic, uh, human mind through the lens of language. And um, just as a short historical review, uh, your audience and you may be interested that we had a lot of trouble getting the title right. I mean, I think this is the 10th or the 11th title that there was a fair amount of discussion, sometimes heated ones with the publisher about what titles sell and what titles don't. And then I would oppose, you know, that's not the point of the books and so on. So just to give give a sample of the debate that went on for four years, uh, I think we started out with a title like From Language to Mind, very simple. And I give a course on that usually when I was teaching. Um, Then I think we we moved to something like, um, uh, I think the publishers or something like uh, Grammar, Cognition, and the Cartesian Mind. Okay, now there are problems with this. I'm not going to detail why we refused it. Mm. And I think we got got to the idea of language as the mirror of the mind. That's a classical kind of topic. Then we got to the idea, um, mind in the mirror of language. Okay. Then that's the generative mind. Okay. And then I think the penultimate title was um, a study of principle G. That was rejected, of course, because principle G is, no one knows about it. Okay. 
So we finally settled to the title, Human Mind Through the Lens of Language. So what is the basic problem? Okay, now that can be approached from different directions. And you did exactly the right thing to point out that there are a host of things which are unique to humans, which seem to cluster, which seem to form some kind of a generative family, and the task is to capture it. But where did that idea come from? Okay, why through the lens of language? Okay. Um, since it's a mostly philosophical forum, uh, a good starting point, and that's how the book starts also, is to, is to look at um, René Descartes' concept of mind. Now, the interesting thing about Descartes' concept of mind, it's a very old thing, everyone knows about it, but um, people know about a lot of things uh, without really getting very clear about what it is about. Um, Descartes' interest, in my view, was to identify the concept of mind with the concept of human mind, that these are identical notions. There is no mind outside the human mind. The human mind is the only mind. The concept of mind applies only to humans. Okay, now that was his, I think, quite, quite a startling thesis, okay. particularly in, in the contemporary times, because uh, there's a lot of studies of um, non-human organisms, okay? A lot of study of um, various kinds of cognition and um, various kinds of behavior that require sophisticated cognitive uh, repertoire, okay? Particularly in the, in the apes and in the, in, the, in the primate family, okay? Before the hominid family. Now, so it's very startling. Why should we have a concept of mind just restricted to the humans? What was Descartes' point? Well, I'm not going to into Descartes' argument. That's in the book. Okay. Pretty complicated one, actually. Uh, and it's usually misunderstood by the people. But uh, there are two points which I, which I may mention here. One is that Descartes' conception of the mind, he doesn't call it human mind because that's the only mind. It's just the mind. The Descartes' conception of mind is both too thick and thin at the same time. Okay, let me explain. It is thick because he centers his concept of mind around the phenomenon of language, as we will see. Uh, but he also includes in the concept things like consciousness. Okay, that's central to his concept of mind. Things like cogitation itself, okay. Things like innate ideas, okay. Things like that, okay. So uh, now many of these things, much of these things, are obviously available outside the human species. I mean, I mean, it is. It makes no point right now to say that animals don't have consciousness. I mean, he he used it in a very very particular technical sense, but let's not get into that. But um, the concept of mind, if it is to be restricted only to humans, simply cannot have a general notion of cogitation built into it, a general notion of consciousness built into it. And who knows what ideas animals have? They probably have some ideas. They move around, plan things okay, in advance sometimes. Okay? Uh, there are a lot of things which look like very clever, uh, as, if, as if they are planned and they are kind of thought about. 
So you cannot think without ideas. So to, to dismiss the very realm of ideas and concepts from the entire range of non-human animals seems like you know, a, a bit too much at the current stage. So in that sense, his notion of mind is too thick. On the other hand, it is also too thin uh, because it is just centered on the notion of language, that human language. So it, it is made human specific because of the linguistic phenomenon. If the language is the hallmark of the human mind. Okay. So as you pointed out in your introduction, that seems to be too thin because there are many, many things that humans seem to do uh, which are not available to the animals. And I'm not getting into any biological or brain thing. That's that there are several things unique about human brain also, but let's not get into that. Just the cognitive aspects. There, um, human beings seem to do um, at least something like music, something like uh, arithmetic, not just numerosity, not just the ability to count, but the ability to uh, form arithmetical knowledge. So arithmetic. Um, these are the very prominent things. But I wouldn't, and, and, and also things like extremely complex kinship relationships, brother of father of daughter-in-law of my neighbor's son kind of thing. And a lot of hierarchies are there. That kind of kinship relationships. And a lot depends upon these things, whether where you're going to um, put your daughter to marriage, things like that, how things are property is going to be divided. Things depend largely on these kinship structures, which are extremely elaborate in the human case. Okay. I would also include, you know, apparently mundane things like the ability to invent and play games. And so some of them can be extremely sophisticated, like uh, I'm a cricket fan, so the game of cricket for or the soccer, or think of, you know, kind of room games like chess or bridge, okay. things like that. That they can be extremely complicated. Then even more mundane things like just knitting a sweater, just two sticks and a piece of wood, and you can just keep on grafting designs, sizes, shapes. There's no end to it, really. Same with cooking. None of these things are. I mean, you think about cooking something very elaborate like a peking duck. And it goes on and on for hours. So many steps, but a few ingredients. They're more or less common to almost all cooking all over the world. Maybe a hundred items or so. Mm. But the kind of cooking that comes out of it, the output, is amazingly rich and open-ended. I mean, you can add something to your picking duck okay, to fit your taste or take something out of it. So that's an innovative step, a recursive step. So, and it's unimaginable that any of these things are remotely accessible to the animals, non-human animals, like cooking or anything like that. And people have been tried to argue that uh, they fashion tools and stuff. I've argued about that in the book. Yep. But yeah, we'll talk about that for sure. So basically, you know, cooking, okay, inventing and playing games, okay, uh, singing, uh, arithmetical knowledge, and lots of lots of other things. Yoga, for example. And there are endless varieties they can make the human posture do. 
the, the human body do with the, with the yoga exercises. It's a very finite human body and a finite number of muscles, a finite number of organs that you can manipulate, but endless number of things you can do with that. Extremely complicated ones. It takes years of practice to do those things. Anyway, uh, that's, let's not count this thing uh, with, with too much of detail. Point is, all of this seemed in a very intuitive sense generative. Just a few ingredients, an extremely complex output, which are basically open-ended. I use the word unbounded. That's the word also Chomsky uses. So open-ended. That can just keep on adding things. Okay. There's no end to the complexity. Although the ingredients are finite and few. That's that's the kind of phenomena that you have much, much beyond language. So the question is, are they language-like? Can we learn something about these non-linguistic but specifically human uh, adaptations or endowments in terms of language? Or are they different from language? Okay. So how much does language, how much um, uh, linguistic operations contribute, if at all, to other non-linguistic domains of generative activity? That question comes up. So that is the basic topic of the book, investigate that. And that's where Principle G is proposed as one singular device that covers all the generative devices conceptually, just to minimize the explanation and maximize simplicity. Right. And then the question, of course, is whether Principle G is the actual operation that is working in the case of language. That is now a research program. That's what the book is about. The human mind through the lens of language. Got it. So let's let's dive in into the details of, of this thesis. So um, you have two parts to this book. So the first part is two chapters where you set out your background, the Cartesian perspective, which you just hinted at a little bit, sketched out some, uh, the Cartesian perspective on the mind, um, and also how the mind is understood in cognitive science. And then in the second part, you turn to your positive proposal with several more chapters, a bit longer sections. So you mentioned Descartes and a bit about the Cartesian perspective. Um, can you just refine that a little bit just to, to visit that um, in terms of mind versus cognition? Uh, you mentioned this distinction, um, but maybe you can refine that a little bit for our readers. How do you understand this term mind in relationship to uh, cognition in the background of, uh, against the background of Descartes. Yeah, uh, I think the, the, the distinction was hinted at by simply granting that uh, uh, animals display a lot of cognitive, uh, cognitive diversity, diversity, a lot of cognitive sophistication, and they don't enter that. The sensory systems and the, you know, planning for the year, that, that's remarkable. And in most of these cases, they exceed the human abilities in, in the perceptual uh, systems in particular. So they, and they are, of course, they are conscious, they shriek, they run away, you know, they don't come to, come to you if they know that you're going to beat them. So that's kind of knowledge they have. So there's a lot of cognition is going on here. So the, but the point is, none of them can do the things I listed in my first response, user language, cook a picking duck, okay, um, 
even a simple music, okay, not to mention Bach and Beethoven, but some, some simple music, or arithmetical knowledge beyond nine, let's say. That, that's when the digitization comes with the 10. They can do none of these things. So um, let's keep the motion of mind, as I think Descartes wanted, to the second of these set of abilities. Okay? And let's keep the much broader notion of cognition to many other things okay, which animals can do. And of course, they are part of the human architecture also. So human beings are also cognitive beings. We are also conscious. We also have uh, perceptual abilities. And um, just that, that's our animal side. And there are lots and lots of things there. So, but the mind is therefore a sub part of, of the human cognitive architecture. Much of it is shared with the animals. That's what I call cognition. And a bit is not shared. That is called mind. Now, why Descartes? As I mentioned, Descartes suggested this uh, distinction without getting very clear about it. So we have to get, we have to get clear about it. Um, just to cut down to the last section of the first chapter. Uh, I think it is. It concerns, if I remember correctly by now, um, it concerns something called a super body. The distinction is not really between mind and body as, as typically understood. But that depends on what you mean by bodies, for example. Now, I have tried many options, like it's a thoughtless thing or it is a physical thing or whatever. None of them seem to work. Because Descartes had this very interesting idea that, um, that um, animals can do lots of things. He was really pretty generous of animals. Okay. He called them natural automatons. The nature's splendid automatons who obviously have mass, so they have dimensions, physical dimensions, but they are also, uh, they're, they're, they're also they have sensations, okay? they have emotions, they can express their anger, Okay. They can vocalize. None of these things seem to be part of the general notion of body. For example, the body that is studied by the basic sciences, physics, chemistry, even biology. Okay. No one knows in biology so far, what does pain mean? But every animal feels pain. We have no, we, we, can, we can describe it in terms of some neural circuitry and all that. But where did it capture the phenomenon of pain? As you know, there's a big philosophical debate about it pain being first person. And it is also first person to the monkey who is in pain. And people miss that one, as if human beings are the only ones who are the first person phenomenon. No, everyone who undergoes pain, a monkey's pain is not the pain shared by the next monkey. It belongs only to the first monkey. And we have no biological account of what does that mean. Okay. So, so but Descartes included all that in the study of animals, in his, in his, in his profile of animals. So that's why I call it super body. That it is, it goes much, much beyond the standard conception of body that is captured with physical, uh, you know, neural, uh, and so on. But it is still to be distinguished from the mind. But even this super body does not contain the mind in the way we have defined it and only very simply in terms of a generative device. So that generative device identifies 
the mind as distinct from the rest of nature, let's say. And that is called, characterized as a super mind. That's the best way to understand Descartes, I think. I mean, he was uh, a medieval philosopher almost, okay. He was just the beginning of the Renaissance, okay. So almost a medieval philosopher. So he, he, he carried all that baggage of substance, attributes, and soul, and this and that, all that is talked in mythology was there. And he had no other vocabulary. There was no neuroscience. Physics was hardly developed in, the, in those days. So he, he very likely to be confused about what he was trying to say. But it is possible to reconstruct Descartes. Look at it. Look at his correspondence carefully, which is the last stage of his writing. So the most sophisticated. Okay. I mean, earlier books like the Meditations and the Reguli and all that. that that's what people read usually. They, they're all, all right, but they're usually the kind of finished writings. He's more profound and brilliant in his long correspondence with people. So there's a Cambridge volume on Descartes correspondence, uh, uh, really rich. I have used that, uh, you know, used that quite a lot to understand Descartes' latest position. That seems to be quite distinct from what people usually believe. And that kind of grounds the notion of a singular mind as distinct from the rest of the human nature and therefore the rest of cognition. That's yeah. And yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, let's. I think the idea of the the singular mind there is a really nice transition to the discussion of cognitive science because there you point out that something that might seem like a, a challenge to this idea of the mind as being unified in an important sense is the idea of modularity in contemporary cognitive science. So we'll move move a few few years past Descartes here to to contemporary um, work in cognitive science. You argue that even if there is some sense of modularity, that doesn't prevent you from understanding these kinds of uh, general principles that that are, uh, I guess, principles that are more general than these sort of uh, modular cognitive abilities. Can you expand a bit on that? How are you engaging with the cognitive science side? Yeah, that's, that's beginning to get into little technicalities. And... Um, um, there, there, there are a lot of problems, I would say, with cognitive science as such, as a, as a super discipline of very, uh, very multidisciplined fold. Okay. Lots of things are happening there. Um, there are lots of problems. But somehow the notion of a singular mind has escaped attention, including the linguists. I mean, I've argued even in the context of Chomsky. Chomsky is one of the proponents of the kind of linguistic mind, the Cartesian mind and all that. Even he seems to have missed the idea that the notion of mind is restricted to some broader notion of linguistic mind. What that is, is in the proposal part in part two. But that seems to have been missed. Instead, we have the notion of a modular mind, which a mind consists of a variety of kind of closed systems. Sometimes they are called informationally encapsulated, uh, some impenetrable systems, okay? My argument is that when you get to the technical details of how they are organized, there are two notions of modular mind, that there are different cognitive systems, um, like language, vision, reasoning, and so on. That's what Chomsky, the traditional view of the modular mind, that they, are, they, are, they have to identify it in terms of their structural principles, how they function. Okay. I mean, language and vision are obviously different in their content, Although there are kind of visual images 
grafted in linguistic means also, as in the case of idioms and proverbs like the needle in the haystack. That's a very visual imagery. Okay. And so unless you have the, the visual competence, you cannot understand the linguistic utterance, needle in the haystack. So they are, but they are kind of, kind of rare, kind of, kind of restricted to metaphors and proverbs. Content-wise, okay. language talks about concepts, vision talks about a perceptual system. Okay, so they are kind of different. And according to Chomsky, their structural principles are different too, okay? But they belong to the mind. Therefore, mind is a collection of cognitive domains. So mind is identified in terms of different structural domains. Now, if you want to have a singular mind, okay, then of course it won't do because, the, uh, because that is based on the idea of a shareable structural principle or principles, I, we don't know yet, principles. So vision and language are, uh, uh, are distinct in terms of structural principles, okay, then they just belong to uh, different realms in, in some sense, in the Cartesian sense. They belong to different doctrines. And of course, animals have vision. Now, there are only five forms of vision in the whole of animal history, as we know by now. The, the master eye hypothesis, only five kinds. And human eye is just one of them. Okay. Nothing very distinct, uh, distinct about the human eye itself as a perceptual system. So um, Chomsky's notion of modularity fails to capture the grain. That's my complaint about uh, that concept of modularity. Jerry Fodor's idea, mostly followed by the researcher that followed, uh, even recently, in recent times, is much more sophisticated. Yeah, that's very technical. The basic idea is that, that these are kind of, kind of um, transducer systems located in between a cognitive output and a stimulus input. Because someone has to translate the physical signals in cognitive terms. Somehow it has to be done. And the system that does it is a transducer in the, in the language of computers, in the, in the language of semiconductors, really. Okay, transducers. So it changes sound into, say, let's say, energy vibrations or mechanical vibrations, that kind of stuff. So there's a kind of cognitive transducer which changes a particular band of digital stimuli from the outside, external world, to something that the human cognition can process. So these intermediate things are called modules in the Fodorian sense. And the elaborate discussion of that, and my conclusion is that they really belong to the perceptual systems, not the systems of cognition we are talking about. So even when Chomsky is talking about, say, language, music, arithmetic, and so on, okay, or uh, something more abstract like mathematics and so on. Okay. We are talking about higher cognition. So from the modularity of the perceptual systems, where it is quite clear why they have to be modular, okay, for speed, for information uh, purity, and so on and so forth. There are lots of criteria. Um, they have to be modular. Why that criteria does not apply to the higher cognitions? So as a conclusion, the two notions of modularity in the market, none of them seem to defeat the idea of a singular mind. And these are the most, two are the most prominent concepts of mind in the cognitive sciences. Okay, so therefore, in that sense, the cognitive science is pretty irrelevant so far uh, for the study of the Cartesian mind. That's it. So we can move on to our own thing. That's part two.
Got yeah. it. So, so you basically engaged with uh, primarily Descartes and cognitive science. You, you had a little comment. So our um, listeners are, are going to be a range of people. This will go out on the language channel. So maybe philosophers of language as well as linguists and others. So I'm just kind of curious. You noted that you in, engage mostly with cognitive science, um, but you don't really get into philosophy of mind per se. Is uh, you mentioned a little bit of the reason why that is. Why, um, why did you really just engage with cognitive science so much? Uh, partly the reason is uh, historical, that uh, I've talked about philosophy of mind, concepts in philosophy of mind, that consciousness, belief, and so on, or now perception, various aspects of perception in other places. So I didn't want to repeat those things. In, in a book that came out just four years ago, uh, there are several chapters on each of these concepts, long chapters on consciousness, belief, and so on. So I didn't want to repeat them. Second, uh, the mind-body identity problem, the central problem in philosophy, continues to be so, by the way. It's not replaced by the mind-brain identity problem, but it's a very significant problem. It does not tell you what the mind is. It just tells you, given some kind of a traditional concept of mind, largely Cartesian with consciousness, language, and other things, how that can be instantiated or implemented on the brain? That's the question. It doesn't really tell you what the mind is. So it is really irrelevant. And we really have no good answer to this question, except for philosophical answers about, you know, the, you know necessary identity and all that uh, from Saul Kripke and other people. Yeah. Uh, uh, that is just the philosophical thesis about if we knew about mind and if we knew about body, then what could be the relation between the two realms? And then the proposal is it will be the form for identity. That looks like a far gauge into the future because we don't have a concept of mind. We don't have a concept of body. To even ask the question properly about how they are related. So the question, the, the, the whole topic seems to me to be premature uh, to, be, uh, to, to, to address the more empirical scientific question you're asking, although in philosophical terms, because there's not much science backing it so far. Got it. Thank you. So with, with that ground cleared, then let's move on to the second part of the book. And this part of the book has six chapters. So just for, for listeners, you have chapter three, uh, which is about language as the mirror of, you, of the mind, as, you, as you've said, and that's where you explain this idea of principle G. In chapter four, you talk about proto, which we'll get to. Chapters five and six together look at this idea of merge in humans and its absence in animals. And then chapter seven, you connect some other domains to merge. And then the final chapter of the book, eight, you draw out some implications, as I, I understand it, for the relationship between merge and principle G. So there's there's a lot going on here, but let's let's see if we can get some highlights along the way, and then listeners can pick up the, the book to, to dive in more. So back to this idea of principle G, this um, this principle which unifies these these multiple things that we're looking for. What kinds of evidence do you find for the existence of this principle? So for instance, you've mentioned um, animals, uh, memories and toolmaking abilities and things. Why does that not count as principle G? What, what are you looking for in order to support your argument for the existence of this principle? Yeah, principle G is just a postulate. There's no argument in his favor, but that's the end of the book. Okay, so that's the beginning of the book. 
principal ji is just a proposal that suppose that there is some form of conceptual unity in the human mind or the mind in in terms of the trying to capture the the the, the intuition of generativity namely the, the initial idea that there are just few elements and we can construct open ended outputs out of that a very computational uh, uh, resource which seems to be available across many domains and if you look at it i mean there are thousands of domains i have just covered five or six maybe uh, or 10 maybe but there are thousands of domains so um, now there are lots of reasons why they cannot be very independent because there's intuition that they kind of share some kind of a generative property so in in the abstract let's call it like we use the word logic as a general abstract notion for the whole idea of reasoning or valid reasoning is called logic now logic can fall come in various varieties okay but they are all logics because they capture you know a very abstract idea of reasoning in that sense um, the the notion of principle g is supposed to capture in the abstract okay the very idea of generative and since it looks like intuitively something like a computational uh, uh, phenomenon uh, there must be some principle operating now there could be thousands of operations there could be hundreds of different kinds of things but the simplest possible proposal is to think of one uh, principle governing all those generative devices that we want to include under the human mind now there's not much argument for this part just apart from simplicity argument but one one empirical point that was stressed in the introduction um and mentioned several times later on uh, can be recounted here so bit technical but uh, but get into that see we are claiming at the same time that these are generative principles which do not have adaptive relations in pre-human systems that they are not borrowed from anywhere else and then modified they just fell into place they kind of fell from the sky kind of thing okay now in biology this kind of evolutionary step is called saltation that the single step speciation a large mutation happens Uh, and uh, you know a single step speciation happens. otherwise usually things happen in a step by step way but in in the case of saltation which is pretty rare but not absent in in the case of biological domains is called saltation single species single step speciation now we don't know anything about the biology of these systems we are talking about language and music not to mention cooking and thing so uh, to borrow the notion of saltation so but the, but the idea that they all are absent in the animal kingdom they are not kind of borrowed functions requires a lot of saltations um in the human case about which we know nothing okay so it's a very mysterious kind of thing and um uh, mysterious kind of phenomena if we think that they are they are multiple in form There are, there are many kinds of things. So language has nothing to do with music, or of course cooking. And whenever I talk about cooking and you know yoga, and then talk about Chomsky's theory of language, people are just aghast. I mean, this guy is mad. I mean, he's putting yoga and Hebrew together. 
Okay, so so he must be mad or picking duck. Okay, or playing soccer. Mm-hmm. But think about it. Uh, if not, then there's a saltation. Okay, and we know nothing about this saltation. And saltation is rare in biology anyway. Like unification is rare in science, saltation is rare in biology. So, uh, combining with our idea of simplicity, we can devise a parsimony. Look, there must be some saltation. Let's keep it to one. Let's keep it to one. So that's the minimum saltation with the maximum explanation. So that's the argument for a single principle G, which is saltation available to the human beings when, how, in which form, we don't know. That links up immediately with the third and the fourth chapter, with the fifth chapter, really. I'm kind of putting it together. I mean, you get a very, very nice overview of the chapter. So I, do, I, I can't improve on that. Okay. So let me go straight to the basic point, that uh, a basic methodological point, which is also an empirical point, that here is an interesting phenomenon, that we have to argue for the saltation nature of linguistic principles. That is kind of known by now. See, among all the systems I'm talking about, language is the most studied, no, no doubt, because it is so useful and it is so ubiquitous in our uh, human existence, language. And I, I think music too, but uh, music somehow escapes the cognitive scientist. But language, but the basic principles of language is saltation, it's kind of known by now. Okay, since we have granted only one space for saltation, and that is already occupied by language, then either we explain the entire generativity of human mind, that is principle G, either in terms of the available linguistic principle, or we have no explanation. Mm. The only research option right now, at the current state of knowledge, biological knowledge, that we have about organisms, the, the really research option is to find out whether the linguistic operation that is um, involved in the emergence of language is also or functions like or is a right candidate for principle G. So the book narrows down by the end of chapter five, by the end of chapter four, and we imagine uh, um, a mythical creature, Proto, okay, who, is the, who is the penultimate creature, pre-human creature, that he has got everything that human beings have. Okay. We know that. I've given some evidence in, in the uh, paleontological discussion, I think chapter four, if I remember correctly, chapter four, Get uh, Style and other people, that uh, there have been lots of species which looked exactly like human beings, including Neanderthals. Okay. Actually, in uh, Smithsonian on somewhere, uh, I think, I don't quite remember now, somewhere, they have actually got a Neanderthal model dressed up as a senior executive in a company. And it makes no, it's very difficult to distinguish. No, the, the, uh, slightly elongated um, face, maybe. Slightly protruded nose, lots of us have protruded noses, elongated faces. Okay, I do because of my imagination. So the point is um, um, study of those, uh, those species, extinct pre human species, are not only not available because they are extinct, okay, and the fossils tell you so much, um, 
they're not even useful because they look like us. So even if you find a fossil that looked like us, it doesn't tell you much. So we have to abstract into a creature, mythological creature called proto. Okay, and the name is obvious, called proto, uh, which had everything in place for the human mental architecture, okay, except for principle G. So once we reach that the search is for principle G, you can think of it, you can imagine a creature called proto who were endowed by a radical mutation with principle G and wow, human language and many other things emerged. The human mind emerged with all sorts of things. Okay. That's the idea. So proto is a theory, a thought experiment. And uh, then we go on to try to describe proto in terms of Chomsky, Darwin and so on, but that's more liter literature survey than uh, actual promotion. So that's yeah. the point. So, so with, with Proto and also maybe let's get back to Chomsky just a little bit, because I think the listeners might be interested in your, your conversation uh, with Chomsky. So um, how would you characterize your view about the relationship between mind and language compared to him? Um, so for instance, maybe we can talk a little bit about this idea of merge, um, about the computational nature of language here, because um, for for Chomsky, um, how does how does he explain, for instance, how language emerges and its relationship to mind in comparison to you at this point, when, when we're thinking about this sort of prehistory kind of stuff? Uh, a Chomsky linguistic theory, I have also talked about it at length in mm -hmm. places, uh, yeah. a book devoted to that thing, where I first mooted this idea of whether the Chomsky principles can be generalized at least to music. Uh, in the book that came out in 2010. So, so uh, there's not much here uh, because that that will be repetition. So, I do not quite directly engage with Chomsky. What I engage with is is an idea that has been around for a while, due to Chomskyans. Let's say Chomskyans. Uh, the leading figure in that group is, of course, Chomsky, and then his followers like Mark Hauser, okay, now, now Robert Berwick, the MIT guys and Harvard guys. Also, most interestingly, many paleontologists like Ian Tattersall, okay, and um, you know, I think um, uh, I think uh, some biologists uh, in Nobel right known by some computer scientists like Charles Yang and so on. It's a lot of people. Okay? It was down to the idea of whether the principles of language are restricted to language or whether they can be generalized. That's the issue. Because unless the principle of language is available outside language, we cannot even formulate principle G according to the restriction of saltation. So the investigation is whether the idea that language, uh, the principle of language is restricted to language, the domain of language, is correct or not. Now, that is usually called the FLM. See, we are concerned only with the generative aspect of, 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 a, of a domain, of a, of a mental domain. Okay. Not so much with the content aspect, you know, the information aspect, just the generative how things are put together. Because the, the information obviously varies from between games and, and, and cooking. To, to knitting, 
and to and to music and so on. You know, one is about tones, the other is about you know wolves, uh, the third is about uh, body action, the fourth is about what. Right? So they obviously vary, but they seem to have the same kind of a productivity. That's the topic. So we look at the productive aspect of language, okay, carefully, just isolate it from the rest of the notion of language. And that's, so that's where I look at the Chomskyan theory in chapter five, quite a bit, okay, just to extract that part, um, uh, the phrase structure part, basically, how things are put together to get into longer expressions in the case of language, and isolate this operation, which has just been recently provided, uh, offered, they call merge. It's a very simple set theoretical notion. Just merge alpha beta is the set alpha beta. An unordered set at that. That's all there is to it. It comes simpler than that. And Chomsky argues quite correctly in my view that the notion of computation must involve necessarily the notion of merge because that's the simplest possible mechanism. Okay, the notion of a uh, set formation must be included. If, if two things are put together to form a recursive structure, okay, which is the basic idea of computation, then it must contain that operation. So in that sense, at, the, at a very basic level, the notion of merge and the notion of computation kind of coincide. Okay. Don't want to get into too much of technical details, but the point is, if that is correct, if that is correct, it can't be true. If principle G is also available, okay, as a manifestation of the linguistic principle, then it can't be true that merge cannot be applied elsewhere. It simply can't be true. It has to be applied elsewhere. And uh, the, the, the thesis, uh, the thesis that merge is exclusive to language is widely held by many linguistic cognitive science. I've given some evidence, okay? And it is called uh, the narrow faculty of language view, FLN. FLN. I think introduced by the famous paper by Markhauser, Chomsky, and uh, Tekfitch uh, in 2002, I think, uh, in, in science. Uh, it's a great paper, a fa famous paper. They introduced the idea of the narrow faculty of language exclusively for human languages, not only for human thoughts, for human languages. It is not shared by, by any other domain, either human or non-human. What is shared, what may be shared, is called FLB, the faculty of language broad. So that has the sound system, the conceptual system, other things, you know, uh, the pragmatic system. They may be shared by other systems or even with other species. But FLN, the, the, the basic recursive structure is exclusive to language. Now that has to be defeated. It's a big thesis. Okay, usually not argued because most linguists believe it, and they work work accordingly. And, and the work is actually going on in on languages and nothing else really. The, the other domains are really marginal in the study of recursivity or generativity. Okay, so no one really bothered to examine carefully whether uh, FLN hypothesis is true. So the whole thesis of generativity, beginning with Descartes kind of boils down to the idea of whether FLN is true. I think that's the kind of, kind of highlighting point of the book. We bring it down to a very narrow question about, is FLN true? If FLN true, our project is bust. It can't go anywhere. So if the project has to go anywhere, 
in the future, not so much in the book itself. How much can you cover in one book? Uh, if the project has to go anywhere at all, FLN must be false. Has to be shown to be false. I'm not saying it's false. Has to be shown to be false. That's what the 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 end part of the uh, fifth chapter and the sixth chapter and the seventh chapters do. That is, they show one that merge need not be conceptually tied to any domain because it's a purely computational principle. That's by the end of chapter five, I think, if I recall. Then um, you have to also argue that they are not available outside humans to have the to, to cut the Cartesian point. So even if it's the simplest computational thing, it is simply not available outside humans. And there are at least three very prominent cases which people mention all the time, namely the, the insect navigation, uh, the bird songs, and then primate uh, lexicalization. Okay. Three very important domains where people think something like language or even syntax is kind of available. Okay. We just uh, modify it. Okay. We, we just, uh, uh, we just uh, um, develop it in human terms. What they don't do, any of these systems do, is to put sound and meaning together to develop the recursive nature of thought. That is not available. If, if the syntax is available, it is available without meaning in the case of birds. Okay, if some semantics or lexical are available in the case of chimpanzee, then there's no syntax. So they have just a, a few rudiments of thoughts, things like that. And in the case of dead reckoning, of course, it's just a, um, just a navigational method to go from one place to another place. It may be computational, it may look like syntactic, okay, but it has nothing to do with human language. So you have to explain the, the novelty of human language afresh in any case. But it defeats Descartes' point that the generative principle can kind of identifies the human mind, if that is how Descartes is to be understood. Okay. So even if these are not linguistic principles, but they are computational principles. So the distinction between the, the, the computational principle available in non-human, even insects, like the, the so-called uh, uh, dead reckoning of the desert ant. This ant is just one centimeters. It's a little thing okay, in the desert, in the Ethiopian desert. Okay. And its brain is 0 0.1 milligrams. 0.1 milligrams. And that is supposed to be computing things with the comparable to the human brain to that extent okay, using recursive mechanisms. Okay. Now, I think it is all the cases are totally impossible. Okay. And there's a lot of controversy, but I kind of review the literature as far as I can do. Okay. Uh, open for a lot of discussion later on. That nothing has been conclusively shown that anything like merge or the elements of human language, including the human concepts, are available outside the humans. So the availability of merge. Uh, the competition principle and the availability of co concepts are restricted to humans. But are they restricted only to language? That question comes up to defeat the FLN. Okay? And that's the chapter seven, basically. Uh, perhaps, what is it called? Now, now, so we have to show the all and only principle. Only means only in the human case, and all means all the human cases, all the human generative cases, that is. 
non-generative, apparently generative case in the non-human case uses anything like merge. But all the generative cases in the human case use merge. That's the all and only argument that we have to finally do. I have done only a bit of this huge work which will actually take a few centuries to kind of develop. Okay, that's just like the Newtonian system. It took several centuries to develop. Okay. So that's the kind of thing. I, I think Chomsky made a remarkable proposal, but he's misled about where the proposal applies. Okay. It goes beyond his own conception. So anyway, so my argument is that it, it does apply to domains uh, much beyond uh, language, definitely to arithmetic, which is not a linguistic domain at all, okay, and also to music, definitely. Okay. Uh, perhaps then we can begin to speculate. I mean, there's no reason to believe that it does not apply. It's a double negation. There's no reason to believe that it does not apply to domains like kinship, Okay, but that's kind of reflected in the kinship language. Okay? The kinship concepts are different from kinship language, but the structure of kinship is reflected so far as it is reflected in the kinship language. It looks like uh, that um, something like uh, merge is operating. It's a minimal competition system anyway. So if there is a competition, it will have to apply. So that we have argued already uh, in merge and computation, I think chapter six. Now, so, and, and it does seem to apply on very simple uh, human texts like uh, crossing a creek by, by placing stones in it, a shallow creek. You want to walk across the shallow creek, okay? And uh, uh, it is too shallow and you don't want to wet your shoes. So you place stone slabs, okay? And uh, placing, that's a recursive thing. It depends on how broad the stream is. It depends on what kind of stones you have, okay? Where you want to cross and so on. It is just context dependent like any generative system. Now, that requires a computational mind, a step by step by step with local steps. Okay? So I suggest that there are several domains in which we can think of merges uh, applying, uh, definitely uh, beyond language. Some of these things are like the sodic structure, metrical stress, uh, or arithmetic, or music, Questions of questions of it applying to domains like morality, okay. um, our concept formation seems to me to be premature. A pretty negative opinion about those attempts. A lot of attempts about showing that morality follows universal grammar, or anything you speak in language follows universal grammar. So geography follows universal grammar. Okay, so that doesn't prove anything because you've already granted that language follows universal grammar. Is morality a different domain? than language, okay? And that's a very questionable, uh, questionable kind, 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 of a, uh, kind of a topic. Uh, we usually study moral language. That takes us nowhere. So it is very unlike music. So, uh, so I've, I've given my, my opinion about uh, which domains are likely to be fruitful for research, uh, which domains are likely to be kind of stultified in research. Uh, some, some of the most active domains are actually stultifying research and they are misleading the research in my view, uh, like the domain of concept formation or the domain of morality and so on and so on. Um, so that's the project, all and only. And we still don't know, we have a lot of work to do, but it, it is quite clear that um, there is a substantive, substantive basis to the only part that animals simply don't have it. There is no competition resource, okay. And the all part 
is at least not one, not just language. It is at least a few. How far it goes, we don't know. That has to be worked out in much, much work that's ahead. Yes, so that's the kind of that part. Of, and you want to talk about chapter eight? <laughs> uh, yeah, sure, sure. Let's. I mean, so, so I think just where we're where we're at right now, you've done a nice job in taking us through quite quite a number of chapters, which are, as you're noting, they're very technical, and there's a lot of a lot of literature that you engage with that we can't just we can't dig into on on the on the podcast. I did kind of want to pause about the on the music point though, uh, just because that strikes me as at least immediately a point where someone might. Um, in a kind of flat-footed way, I say, well, if we allow that your um, that merge is involved in music, um, doesn't that seem to suggest, insofar as birds are engaging in bird song, that cuts out the only side of things? So you can either allow that merge uh, doesn't doesn't underwrite music, and that way we can keep it away from birds. Or um, if merge is part of music, then we've got to include birds. So I thought I thought the bird song case was a good one to kind of pause on a little bit to to understand how merge is involved in music, but that's not present in bird song. Yeah, that's a very very interesting topic. Still very much under research. I don't have any conclusive or definite answer to the issue. Uh, but human music seems to be very unlike bird songs in two respects. Okay, there are many, but at least two respects. Okay. We may find bird song to be um, a, um, a computational complex generating process. It's possible that it be, but that's because we are endowed with the computational process. Our, our mind thinks like we can see computation even in the bottom of the sea, in the, in the structure of the continental shelf. We see competition even there. Okay, we see computation in a sunflower, but we don't want to say that the sunflower is computing. That's a big difference there. But in the music case, human mind is computing. It is putting notes together. Do birds put notes together? Okay, and my answer, so far as I know, the literature, very complex literature, is that no evidence for it so far. Because bird songs are very complex uh, sound patterns, no doubt. Possibly because uh, they are also endowed with a very rich um, biological structure called vocal learning. I'm not denying that. And we also have vocal learning to both sing and, and to speak. And they also have vocal learning. But the vocal learning can be just of, you know, just be endowed with a sound, the expression of a sound pattern. Does not mean that the sound pattern is constructed bit by bit, just like the continental shelf is not constructed bit by bit by someone, but it's just there. It's kind of a natural artifact. So a bird song is something like that. And the hallmark of the evidence for that is that most birds are given, are endowed with just one song. Okay, I mean, there are parts of this song which kind of sound different. That's probably a performance factor. The age and the, uh, the you know, the gender, at the time of the of the season and so on. I mean, it is reported, for example, by Kippa and others that you know healthy males in spring, nightingales in spring, uh, sing the longest songs because their, their throats are. Uh, but there, there are many many sound patterns we can also emit. I don't want to name many of them, 
but we can emit a lot of complex sound patterns. I mentioned my sister's elaborate laughter or my coughing during the change of season, which can be very elaborate, and it contains units. And because of my throat composition and her throat composition, they are roughly the same. So we are kind of endowed, we are kind of given these complex sound patterns because of the way we are built in. We don't want to say that it is more like a language or a music. Okay, so that's the basic argument. Now, whether music is a, is a, is a recursive system at all, that is still under debate. I'm setting it aside from bird song issue. Whether music is a recursive system is, is a kind of controversial. But there is growing, growing support for the idea that it is a composition. Whether it includes merge is much more restricted because of the ideological dominance of the FLN idea that the, uh, that the recursive structure of language is restricted to language. Such a prominent idea in cognitive science that not many people are concerned with the idea that it may apply elsewhere. Those who do usually think of those domains like music as identical with language. I mean, for example, Carson Peseski do. They think that they have a music identity thesis, music language identity thesis, precisely because they think that merge applies in the case of music. As you know, Peseski is one of the most prominent linguists. That's so is Carson, why not? So, um, I, I, I don't agree with that idea at all. I think the only similarity between language and music is that they are recursive, but that takes you nowhere. In fact, there are much neurological evidence that uh, they are located in separate part, except for this common domain, which looks like domain general. And that's probably characterized by merge. So none of these arguments work, I think, ultimately. But that's more research is needed. It's just in one book, I can only get a chapter section for music, not even a whole chapter. Of course, of course. Thank you. Thank you for expanding on that. Let's let's turn to your last chapter. And, and then I have one more question if we have time. Um, so what are the implications then for your thesis? Yeah, no, I think there are several, several. I get pretty technical things about the new things proposed by, by Chomsky about the nature of merge, which is quite remarkable. It's quite amazing that he's 93 and still proposing new things, which is taking uh, the winds away from you know, practicing linguists. Uh, it's a great, great, great point. So he said some very new things. Okay, he calls it the, the capital merge and the pair merge and so on. Uh, pretty uh, dense linguistic notions. Uh, uh, I kind of get into those things to say whether our notion of principle G uh, can be accommodated with these new notions of merge. So I'll just leave that topic because it's pretty technical. The more interesting implication is the evolutionary one. Because now that we have delinked merge from language and tried to align it with principle G, and since we are trying to argue that principle G is a product of a salutation, a very ancient one maybe, it is possible and it applies to domains other than language, of course, then it's possible to use principle G for many hominid cases, okay, possibly even beyond homo sapiens, but hominid cases, later hominid cases, to explain a very mysterious kind of recursive character of, of much uh, hominid function. One of them is the, is, the, is, the, is the making of stone tools. I mean, there's a lot of research done by archaeologists, okay? unknown to the kind of audience that we have, very intricate work. 
which actually say that there are six levels of recursion in the cutting of a stone stool, okay, that they ultimately use for, uh, for, the, for the arrow, I think, as an arrowhead. It's not easy to find one. They don't drop from them. You have to make them. And for make, making them, there's a lot of selection. You have to find the stone, where it has it. Then you have to make a tool out of that stone to find another stone to take it out. And then you sharpen it. Then you find it. It's a lot of processing. And they, are, they come in a sequence, one after. That's like cooking. That, I mean, there are some, some very, very good scientists have actually found out six to seven levels of recursion. Okay. Usually, that's what human languages take, six, seven recursion. And that's then uh, something like a phase that comes to a closure. It's passed to interpretation. Okay. Hard to get a linguistic sequence with a phase, which is more than six steps. And you already have it. You know, far, far, far beyond language. And as far as you know, language is about hundred, uh, about hundred thousand years ago, kind of it emerged in its full form, roughly. And I'm talking about something that emerged pre-human. It is probably something like um, uh, something, something like um, uh, I don't, I don't know what what species it would be. Um, maybe something like a master or something, but at least 300K, that is 300,000 years ago, much before language. Now, it can now be explained with the G. That room is now available because it has been dealing from language, so it can now be used for the entire history of, of human evolution, okay? the recursiveness of the human mind. It kind of grew from there it probably was, was introduced somewhere even before that, so that very primitive hominids okay, uh, could use it for sharpening uh, and then, then ornaments and other things much, much before language emerged. So language is a consequence of all the sharpening of the human mind that ultimately led to language. So, um, so the idea that it fell only for language that's the kind of Chomsky idea. Okay. A lot of people believe in that. The saltation occurred only with language, and a lot of paleontologists also believe in that. Uh, that seems to be false. So the evolution of the human mind, therefore, precedes uh, the evolution of human language in that sense. That's one of the implications, which I think is pretty fascinating uh, so far as the results of the book are concerned. Yep. Yeah, I agree. That's, I, I think that's a nice place to to sort of end the and wrap up the the interview with. I've taken a, taken a lot of your time, and I appreciate you walking us through the the book. There is, as you've alluded to, there's much more uh, sort of technical engagement with some of these linguistic ideas with with merge and its details and so on. And if folks want to pick up the book, they can they can look at that. Um, as this book is out now and it's completed, what are you what are you working on now? What are you spending your time on? I spend my time on a lot of things, <laughs> so um, including political ones. So um, I'm not getting getting into that, even philosophical ones. But I mean, the people listening to this may be interested to know that it immediately opened the, the, the research just reported immediately opens uh, opens up a, a, a question. Or, a, or it touches an issue that has been kind of put under the carpet for a long time, okay? 
That is, if it is the case that the recursive principle or the generative principle G was available much before language emerged, then we can use that principle because it's already, already available to constitute the atoms of language, okay? Atoms of namely words. Okay. Words are contain at least concepts, at least concepts and sounds. Okay. Uh, the syntactic factors categories probably came later. Okay. Uh, that's an open, open question. But at least the two things. But even these two things are for entirely different domains. Concepts are kind of internal to the mind, kind of their kind of images or whatever. Sound is, is outside, external. And so there are different domains. And only merge, something like merge, can put it together. Maybe in the form of pairs, but that's open-ended because there's no, really no, uh, no theoretical limit to the length of the word, as polysynthetic language is you. They just go on or not. Okay. So a lot of things, are, of course, you, you have to evolve morphology and other things. There are kind of technical things. The point is, the notion of a word has to be available before the notion of a phrase and then the notion of a sentence. And it's a complete mystery in linguistics so far where words came from. But that's usually said it. They're just uh, CI system, conceptual intentional system, and there's a sound system. They're kind of independent and, uh, you know, and merge puts it together. Okay. But that basically means that lexicon is already there and the merge puts the lexicon to generate the phases. Now we can argue, no, the lexicon also is a creation of merge. Okay, that's the kind of Darwinian thing that we can, that, that we harp on to. So we can go back to chapter four in that sense. That we can now use merge or principle G if you like, to explain the foundations of language so that the more generative part, part of part of language then takes over. That has so far remained unexplained. So that part is there. And um, if I am permitted, it probably also explains uh, or begin to touch. I, I won't say explains yet, but I'm not, not yet written much thinking about it. Just given a few talks here and there. That there's probably a room or a window to a vexing philosophical question that has been bothering us since Plato. And certainly since Descartes, that is where do concepts come from? Concepts are peculiar things. They are kind of internal to the mind, right? Uh, but they are supposed to be kind of independent of language. And we are supposed to be inheriting them somehow from, from somewhere. So Plato was forced to call them universal forms, kind of God-given. You can't escape theology when you have this notion of a concept as kind of separate domain. Similar with Descartes' idea of uh, innate ideas. They are kind of innate, they are kind of given. I mean, he may have a biological uh, principle there, but even that is mysterious. What biological principle will give us concepts? But now, now that we are separating, splitting the notion of a word, to various parts, okay. we can probably do the same 
with the notion of ego. I've mentioned that in a one or two paragraphs at the end of the book. So that's why I'm talking about it. There's more work since. That maybe the notion of a concept is not mysterious at all. It's very human specific. Then a concept emerges when the visual content, say the visual content or a perceptual concept of content or the audible content of information is kind of freed from its uh, stimulus-dependent condition and becomes something like an abstract idea. And that happens because it combines with the sound. So if an image, if, if the thinking is restricted to images only, we know the images are first person restricted to one individual, they can't be communicated, you know, and they kind of, they're also momentary, they kind of die out because the, you, know, you turn your head and it's gone and you have to do it again, kind, kind of thing. There's a lot of problems with images. Okay? And um, empirically speaking, there cannot really be anything more than images in the concept of a concept. Okay, otherwise you have to believe in theology. Okay. So if you want to shun theology, keep to the empirical resources available to us, let's say perceptual resources, then it's very difficult to explain the notion of a concept as both abstract and having you know, some kind of a content okay, coming from uh, perception. The combination with sound solves the problem. See, if you call something a dog, then you can call it a dog again when you see something like this. Someone can hear dog. Okay, so it is shareable also. So your image is now shared via the sound, which we call a concept. Concepts are nothing but marked images. It's a very, very simplistic notion, therefore very dramatic one, but I don't see anything else in a concept except that it is marked and therefore kind of feed from its stimulus dependency. That gives language its stimulus freedom, as Chomsky calls it. But uh, that requires mixing images with sound that you already need for the notion of a word anyway. So concepts emerged as words emerged. So I remember um, a postdoctoral student in Germany asking me, I just have a concept in my mind. Okay. So tell me what it is. But that defeats the whole thing. You simply can't have, but you may have an image of where you can't tell what the image is. If you want to tell me what the image is, you have to use a word. You have to use some sound. That's probably the reason why there are so many languages. Everyone had, every population had to do it afresh each time. The sounds vary. Sounds are kind of taken from the outside. Whatever is available to, to one community from another community. There's a lot of complexity there. There are some universal features, no doubt. Mm -hmm. Basically, the sound of Navajo is very distinct from the sound of Hindi. Okay, so the Hindi speakers, the primitive Hindi speakers and the primitive Navajo speakers had to do it afresh. And, but the images are roughly, roughly the same because of the constitution of the human perceptual systems. So we can convey the same concept with different sounds. Okay. That's why we have so many names for dogs. I have only given the list for dogs. But you can think about it, there are thousands of sounds for dogs. 
the same concept which vary in sound. That's an area of research, lexical research, which mm-hmm. I think can now be very seriously noted. I think that's all wrong. Great. That's I'm working right now. Great. Well, th- well, thank you. That's that's uh, a lot of food for thought with the implications of, like you're saying, this very simple underlying fundamental principle that you're uh, you're arguing is is present early before the um, the emergence of language and um, generates potentially a number of uh, number of specific to human um, uh, sort of features. Yeah, um, there's. Could talk talk for much longer. I'm sure there's a lot lot we could dig, dig into here, but I I've taken up a lot of your time already. So I should thank you and uh, listeners who are interested in the book. Uh, we'll have a link and information on the website as usual. So uh, thanks very much. I appreciate your time, Nirol. Thank you. There's no time at all. I can for hours and hours on this on this stuff. Thank you very much. <laughs>